welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're talking about Black Panther. Obviously, what else could we be talking about? Um, it's Hollywood's first Afrofuturist blockbuster, starring Chadwick Boseman as King T'Challa of Wakanda. His country is a technologically advanced utopia, kind of hidden by a force field from the outside world. And faced with these outside forces like the arms dealers Ulysses Claw and Eric Killmonger, who's played by Michael P. Jordan, he has to decide whether it's time for Wakanda to go public, um, sharing its wealth, but also kind of endangering the country's way of life. Yes. So one of our very first podcasts years ago was about the comic Black Panther, which Gav is very passionate about. And we have finally arrived at the film after many years yeah. of I, I think this is literally the first time I have ever seen a comic book movie where I'm actually into the comic beforehand, which sounds weird because I obviously cover this stuff for a living and I've loved the MCU since Iron Man back in the day, millions of years ago. But I literally never read Thor or Iron Man or any of those comics at all before the movies came out. I read some X-Men, but obviously they have nothing in common with the movies. Black Panther... Read all of them beforehand, very satisfied with what they did. Perfect execution <laughs> of that adaptation. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so why don't you... Let's begin with you talking about that. <laughs> and how how this satisfied you as a Black Panther fan. Because I can't speak to that at all. Because <laughs> I don't read comics. So let's just get this out of the way at the beginning here. How this relates. What you think they did well. Just just take it away for us. Okay. Top of I feel the like I've not prepared enough for this. I should have done some like comic book revision. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like I, we must have discussed this in our Black Panther Comics podcast, but I don't really remember because it was so long ago. But basically, he's one of the few kind of headline Marvel characters where you can conceivably just read the whole back catalogue because there's not really that much. Um, he's been going since the 70s and there's you know, various different periods. But like, not all of them are winners. <laughs> um, and like some of, the, some of them are just like really straightforward adventure comics and are pretty good. Um, and obviously quite a lot of them are quite political and they have this cult following um, among black fans in America, which is part of the massive buzz around this movie for obvious reasons. And the most recent ones are written by ta Coates and drawn by a variety of artists, but mostly Brian Stelfreeze. And they are like completely amazing. All of the... Um, all of the dialogue in it kind of reads a little bit like an epic poem. Uh, it's very kind of carefully chosen word choices and it's very lyrical and the dialogue feels kind of naturalistic, but also like not like anything anyone would say in real life, if that makes sense. It's very kind of lofty, poetic conversations about identity and that sort of thing. So it's very different from most mainstream kind of superhero comics in that regard. This movie isn't really like that in terms of the dialogue like if the dialogue is very much kind of like accessible fun stuff that you can watch as a child and be like cool uh, <laughs> as with every moral movie but um i think just this film really distilled the themes of the comics in a really smart way and it also understands that it shouldn't be in the same vein as a lot of the other marvel movies which is a solo kind of adventure story about one person maturing and then succeeding through their own cool superpowers because it's pretty obvious although they don't straightforwardly state it the black panther is kind of superpowers like his suit you know it's a tool that's quite useful and cool to watch him have fight scenes in but it's like barely relevant at all to the actual plot because it's about nation building and it's about national identity and it's about kind of power struggles on a political level so it doesn't really matter whether he can like fight or not and they actually you know they do address that in the movie because there's various points where he has to defeat people in single combat and at one point he loses and it's like that's not actually how leadership works if you can kick someone in the head it's like all that means is you can kick someone in the head but also like the wakandan world building is just so amazing and that kind of plays into the visual effects a lot like the production design and costumes are just so far beyond anything we've seen in the mcu it's actually ridiculous the only marvel movies that look good are the first Captain America movie which looks reasonably good because they've got that 1940s pastiche thing but that's not an original aesthetic and then the Thor movie is like love Thor 1 Thor Ragnarok obviously a very good looking film but there's not much kind of meaning behind that concept it just looks good 
Whereas this movie, they did a phenomenal amount of research into the costumes. All of the advisors who are in Black Panther's council, each one of them is based on a different tribal community in Africa. I mean, obviously it's like a whole continent. So like they're very, they're intentionally kind of fictionalizing things. But um, yeah, it just looks gorgeous. And all of the the design mean stuff. Like I really, I would love to interview the production designer about all the architecture because there was loads of really interesting stuff going on there, like Afrofuturist cityscapes. It's the first time that Hollywood has made a fantasy film that isn't based on generic American sci-fi, like shiny spaceship stuff or Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, and it just, it is so refreshing. Like, obviously, you know, we're not like getting the same thing out of it as people who are like, represented on screen in a like relatively rare fashion but it's just like artistically oh my god it looks so good <laughs> i want an art book like star wars i have never had that effect with any other film apart from star wars where i like to have my little encyclopedia of spaceships but here i want my spaceship <laughs> encyclopedia thank you <laughs> we should also say that the production designer whose name is hannah beachler yeah um did the production design for moonlight i believe she also worked on creed so actually this movie behind the scenes Ryan Coogler, the director, who is wonderful in Dead Creed and Fruitvale Station, which I've not seen yet, but both of those star Michael B. Jordan as well. Um, he took a lot of the people who he works with on his other movies onto this, which was a very smart idea. Um, so it's like the same composer. Um, he's worked with a cinematographer before, and that's uh, Rachel, what's her name? The woman who's currently nominated for um, an Oscar. Rachel Morrison. Rachel Morrison. Yeah, she um, she's nominated for Mudbound and she's the first woman to ever be nominated for an Oscar in cinematography, which is wild. Uh, but yeah, it's like he works with women, which is also wild. Um, costumes, production design and cinematography, all women who are amazingly impressive work and like they're really high in their field. And he's worked with them before. And I'm very excited for everyone involved in this film. <laughs> yeah, there are words, there's a moment where they flash back to... The child's father being killed from which happens in the age of Ultron, and it is so manifestly apparent that those few shots are not from the same movie because they look so fucking shitty compared to everything that happens in this film. And I was like, "Oh right, Justin made this movie." I like cracked up. But there's a scene where they go to the British Museum, um, but it's not the British Museum. It's like described as like the Museum of Great Britain or something. So I'm like, this is clearly a dig at all the movies where they go and no. Africa. Like, there's literally a point in Avengers 2 where they go to somewhere that's labelled just, like, East Africa or something and it's like, what? <laughs> so it's like, they've got the Museum of Great Britain and it's just this fucking grey box <laughs> and it just looks like shit and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I, I, I accept it. <laughs> I believe that the actual moment in Age of Ultron was the African coast. Oh, I yeah. I think that, that was what it was. <laughs> yeah, because I, I feel like we definitely mentioned that in our Age of Ultron podcast. I remember sitting in the cinema and like freezing into a lump of ice. <laughs> so bad. So bad. Yeah, this is it's a beautiful, beautiful film. I did find that some of the fight stuff was not shot great. I agree. Um, <laughs> which is standard for these movies. I thought some of... I thought the action scenes were in general very compelling in a sense that like there's a really long car chase and really long car chases are often not engaging and this one definitely was because there was actually stuff going on yeah sort of changed throughout it but a lot of the close-up fight stuff was just like could not tell what was well this is like such a consistent problem right yeah because it's the same problem with Captain America the Winter Soldier right where they've choreographed a fight scene which the actors can clearly perform well because they've been doing it for weeks but then they just like put the camera in an extreme close-up and just sort of shake it around and in this like like Morgan said the the kind of general action scenes in this film were really good and they also were far preferable to a lot of superhero movies because they had narrative purpose you know they were more emotionally kind of intense and they like weren't this massive sprawling explosion fest like in Avengers Age of Ultron but in the hand-to-hand combat scenes there were like several times where I wasn't even necessarily sure what was happening and I watch a lot of action movies so it's like if I can't tell (laughs) then right that is a minor issue overall (laughs) well it was and it was just interesting to me because Creed is a boxing movie right and that's obviously boxing is very contained you're in yeah. a square and there's only so much that can be done but the boxing in that movie is so carefully directed yeah and so it is like, a different cinematographer yes also a woman 
I should note, who uh, shot Velvet Goldmine as well. I remember discovering and being very delighted by it, though I don't recall her name at the moment. Um, but it, I was just a little surprised because that was shot so well and so yeah. kind of unlike other boxing movies. And that is a quibble, but it was something that I was sort of like, ah, oh, yes, Marvel movies, there is no escape from this. <laughs> like, you just can't. Oh my god, they, they can't get away. Although I feel like Thor Ragnarok did not have that problem as much. Um, no. Although there wasn't as much fighty Well, there wasn't stuff. really as much action scenes. And when they did have it, it was more like Taika Waititi just wanted people to look really cool. So instead of having a bunch of fighty stuff, it was more like action set pieces where it's something you could spray paint onto the side of your van where someone's holding like a giant right. lightning bolt. And you're like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> very 80s. Yes. Yeah. Um, but in general, I found this, it found it very well directed. It's very beautiful. And the fact that what's happening in the frame is so beautiful really helps that. The cinematography is also good, but when you have something to shoot that's as gorgeous as those costumes, you're just automatically halfway there, right? Like, it, it's just stunning. Um, and it was so different from everything that Marvel has done and any other superhero movie that has ever been made, basically. I mean, someone pointed out that, like, there are, aside from a couple like very incidental people in that British museum scene or museum of Great Britain scene, excuse me. Um, there are two white actors in the entire film and they don't really appear except for one scene where they appear together. Like Andy Serkis is in one half of the movie and Martin Freeman is in the other half of the movie. Um, both Lord of the Rings veterans, which is just kind of funny to me since there's definitely a Lord of the Rings, uh, influence <laughs> in this film, shall we say? Um, and they're totally incidental. Like, Martin Freeman basically just bumbles around being an idiot, which was highly amusing. He is playing the pa- character who may be my least favorite character in Marvel Comics. And he's, I mean, yes. that's kind of who you hire Martin Freeman for, but I feel like they could have made him more annoying. But instead they were like, throw him a bone. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think they had just had to be like, we have to have one white guy. And they picked terrible. one who couldn't do an American accent. Yes. Well, is- that he was cast before this film so yeah. they just were stuck with him but yes his accent was very bad and it was fine it's like whatever there is a moment however when they all tell him to shut up and my theater is really pleased with that um i should say before we get any farther let me just lay out for you my viewing experience of this film so i was in a very small theater in brooklyn which I like to go to. I saw Star Wars there too. It's very sort of homey, homey experience. And sitting behind us were four eight-year-old children. I would guess they were around eight who did not stop talking for literally the entire film. (laughs) I was with a friend of mine and we sort of decided after that at some points in the movie, this had added to our experience and at other points it had detracted from the experience. <laughs> there were three boys and one girl who was at the end. And the girl did not contribute to this discussion and I think, in fact, was shushing them from time to time. But, oh, let me tell you, they would not be shushed. And one of them, I think, was a Marvel expert and kept telling them all, a, what had just happened on screen, and B, all of the like Marvel mythology that was not being explained by the film. And I'm not entirely sure that the others really needed all of this information, but oh my god, he was providing it whether or not they wanted it. And when the movie was over, we realized that there had been one dad on the end of the row who clearly was just like, I don't care. I, I have given up so there were some moments for instance a dramatic death scene where they were just chattering through where i was like could you please stop now but overall listening to the enthusiasm of these children was like very touching to me because it wasn't like they were talking about like random shit they were so laser focused on this movie that i was like oh my god you care so much about this and then when we were talking about it afterwards i realized like this film despite having a fair amount of fight scenes we were just discussing is was so clearly made with children yes i kept thinking this all the way through i was like this is 
I mean, all of the Marvel movies are rated PG-13, right? And I'm assuming this one was also rated PG-13? Yes. Yeah, but I yeah. was like, this seems so much more kid-friendly than a yes. lot of them. And because there is violence, but like it's not, it's the kind of violence you see in children's films where it's like emotionally really compelling and upsetting, which like you literally get in like Disney cartoons, but it's not super brutal and gory. And there's stuff like when there's a point where the car crashes and I was like, oh no, she's going to be hurt. And it's like, she is not scratched. <laughs> her, <laughs> her, her safety seat like deposits her down on the, on the ground with like not a hair out of place. And I was like, okay. But also in terms of the political stuff, which we're going to discuss later, they just kind of articulate the message in such a clear way without seeming like they're explaining stuff to you in a condescending way, which is some yeah. kind of fucking magical writing there, I have to say, because there are so many blockbuster films where they feel the need to explain extremely obvious, not even like narrative themes, but like basic information about the film. Like they would just have like shitty expository dialogue. And in this movie, they were trying to get a conversation started about colonization that eight-year-olds could understand after seeing the movie. <laughs> I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, yeah, it's... It- manages to be definitely like obviously enjoyable for adults right but there was nothing in it that I thought an eight-year-old couldn't watch this right and obviously little kids go to all of these superhero movies but I feel like in a lot of the Marvel films there is content where I would not be like super thrilled about my theoretical child seeing that at age you know eight say which these kids i think were and of course the Zack snyder movies like goes without saying just i mean i was i was sitting behind like a crying child during man of steel and this child's dad is clearly just did not know what they were in for and this little boy was just crying it was horrible (laughs) yeah but this one it wasn't just that there wasn't anything objectionable it was that i think it literally was deliberately crafted yeah, for sure. For kids. Which is and, like the opposite of Guardians of the Galaxy, which yes. is immature, but not really child-oriented. Correct. It's for fucking man-children. <laughs> yes, yes. And one of the other things my friend sort of observed about the violence was that there's a lot of moments where he'll just like, T'Challa will just like exert power and then everyone sort of like flies away from him like you're playing with your toys and everyone like, boom, everybody's like... <laughs> All the toys fly away. Well, that like, is the magic exactly. of vibranium. Right, yes. But this made so much sense because I realized, and we were discussing this beforehand, and you were like, I do not understand because I, unlike you, was not raised on Disney films, is that clearly one of the biggest influences of this film was The Lion King. And I have not read very many reviews of this because I try not to read stuff about films before I see them, and I saw this yesterday. But oh my god, there's so much of The Lion King in this movie in a way that was extremely delightful to me. And obviously, the sort of king secession stuff like is related to Hamlet and also many plays in every canon in the world. Yeah, like and that's, the fucking you know. Thor franchise. They're all spins on similar stories. And I love all of them because I love me a good monarchy story. Right. But there were literally visual references to the lion king all over this movie he goes and sees his father in the beyond that looks exactly like when simba talks to his father in the beyond and the lion king there's a shot where he although i will add also in the comics they have that right but you know it's it did struck me as you know very similar there's a shot where he sort of comes back from the dead and like climbs over a thing and like challenges someone um, that is extremely reminiscent of the Lion King. Subsequently, they fall down a thing, which is what happens in the Lion King at the end. Like it just goes on and on and on. And I was thinking about this and I was like, is this just because I watched the Lion King a million times as a child? And then I realized that Ryan Coogler is three years older than I am and was like, oh my god, he also watched The Lion King a million times as a child. (laughs) Even the romance in this feels very much like the romance of The Lion King. Like, there's just a lot of resonances. And there also, see, like, it felt like there was some Lord of the Rings stuff, felt like there was some Star Wars stuff. 
And just obviously, we'll talk about the political resonances, and that is not coming from, say, a Disney film, although this technically is a Disney film now. But so many of those references were coming from films that, like, A, I watched as a child, which was really fun to me, but are designed to be watched by children that this film had that quality too, which uh, I just felt was really cool because this movie should be for kids and specifically black kids. Like that that's the audience for this film, really. I mean, adults can watch it too. That's fine. But I mean, it's, it's there's reason it kind of starts with shots of little black kids playing basketball, right? Like that's not an accident either. And I just thought it was really like amazing that you get a job for Marvel and are like, I know what I must do. <laughs> just like, good for you, man. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, shall we talk about the women? Yes. Because I feel like that kind of <laughs> extends from this. Like, again, you get this, this assignment or like, aha, uh-huh, this is what I'll do with my power. But it's literally, it's like they like, all have that man. power and he is the only one who is like, yeah, well, I right. don't know, Taika Waititi as well, but he is like the one who's like, I value women. <laughs> They do have a starting block from the comics where there are more female characters than in the kind of core group than there are for quite a lot of the other Marvel heroes. But equally, you could easily have just made the decision to not bother. <laughs> um, and right. you could have just had the Dora, the Dora Milaje as like background people with spears. That's the, the guards. Um, but this definitely had like more female characters than any movie apart from Wonder Woman. And in Wonder Woman, most of the female characters disappear after the first act. And in this one, they were like so amazing. I was just like, afterwards, I was like, I can't believe that this is a film that has so many good female characters that Lupita Nyong'o's character is the boring one. I was actually quite surprised because like her role is basically nothing compared to quite a lot of the others. I mean, she's still great, but like... Well, I found all three of the women more interesting than any of the male characters, which is amazing. And I thought Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan were both great, and that those characters were both interesting. Wonderful, and perfectly but, cast. But like, oh my god, I love, I love Shuri so much. Every instant Shuri was on screen, <laughs> she was like, oh my god, Letitia Wright is such a delight. Absolutely so wonderful. Um, that is T'Challa's younger sister, yes. who is basically playing Q, Yeah, but much funnier. I say as someone who appreciates Q. But she was hilarious. <laughs> she's just, and she's so, like, she's not like, oh, here's the nerd character. She's a genius, but she's also, like, a fun, cool teenager. And it's just a really great balance with T'Challa, because kind of the point of his character is that he's always a lot more serious than basically everyone around him, because he has to be. He has a very serious personality. And I think that's also kind of reflected in the casting, because Marvel is really incredible at casting its protagonists. And they cast actors who literally just are their roles. So Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. You know, and Chadwick Boseman very much does have that kind of stage presence kind of situation where he's serious. And like when you see him in an interview making a joke, it won't be like a dumb joke, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, Letitia Wright is just like this because she's like teasing him right from the beginning. Like they have this great introductory scene from the family where you see Okoye, who's the general of the Dora Milaje and is basically T'Challa's second in command. And she's kind of teasing him about his crush on Lupita Nyong'o's character, Nakia. And then Shuri shows up and she's also teasing him. And it's just like, it's a really obvious kind of setup to tell you their dynamic, but also just works really well. And I love that Okoye, who's obviously meant to be this very kind of, you know, solid, loyal, like tough warrior person. They also gave her a sense of humor. Yes. It's like, thank you. You have character depth and Tanai Gurira is amazing. (laughs) She also wrote a play that Lupita Nyong'o starred in on Broadway around a year ago. Oh my god. Uh, and she's in the fucking Eclipse. Walking Dead. Because the thing is, right, judging by, like, I follow someone on Twitter who is a Walking Dead fan who just posts nothing but fanfic and fan art about Dana Guerrero's character. I don't know what her name is, but, like, I was under the impression that she was, like, the co-protagonist of the show. But my coworker Michelle Jaworski does all the coverage for The Walking Dead, and she told me this week that apparently her character gets nothing to do on screen, and that's why there's so much fanfic. And now I'm doubly annoyed because it's like <laughs> she's so good in this movie. <laughs> yeah, 
she is great. I also like that so this is kind of a spoiler, but I also don't care. It basically winds up being like men versus women at the end, and the women are right. It's like that's correct. That's <laughs> good. Good job. <laughs> women are always right. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, was... if you if you watch this movie and enjoyed it, which obviously you will have done if you're listening to our podcast, read the recent comics the current run which started in 2015 or 2016 it is very much in that same route where it kind of it obviously goes deeper into the politics of Wakanda because they've got a long-running storyline but kind of the idea is that you do side with T'Challa because he's the hero and you know that he's a good person but at the same time monarchy is a flawed ruling system there's like a couple of different revolutions happening at the same time in Wakanda where you know the country's been weakened by previous wars so there's like these revolutionaries who show up and are just like we want to crush everything and then there's kind of a more not moderate but like a more sympathetic set of revolutionaries who are led by a couple of people who left his guard so it's these two women who are trying to kind of they're very loyal to their country but they're like we need a different governing system and it really is one of these things where it's like there's all the there's like all these amazing female characters and it has loads of interesting commentary about like gender and revolution and it's yeah it's just great they've got good source material to work with well let's have that lead us into the politics discussion section of our podcast, which we can also use to discuss the bad guy. It's played by Michael B. Jordan, as we mentioned. Yes. His name is Eric Killmonger, which is just quite a name. Yes. <laughs> what what could that signify? Yeah. About I was him? like I was I was amused by how they had to handle the names in this movie, because I like in my opinion, none of Black Panther's enemies, his nemeses in the comics, are really that good. M'Baku is the other one who is like a guerrilla themed tribal leader in the comics. It's not good. And his makeover for this film was incredible. Winston Duke is so good in that role. You know, and he's introduced, you're just like, oh, okay, he's just like a foil for T'Challa to defeat and be like, oh, look, he's done a David and Goliath and defeated the big guy. But then later on, it's just like he has so much humor and charm. And I came out of this movie being like, I'm a bit of a T'Challa M'Baku shipper now. <laughs> uh, but, um, but Eric Killmonger is kind of the main villain in the comics sort of like but the, his in in the movie they were like his name's actually eric stevens and uh, killmonger is his nickname and it's like well sure. <laughs> we all know he's eric killmonger <laughs> but i found him i can tell from the way you put his name in our document in capital letters with three exclamation points <laughs> after it that you were very enthusiastic and i was at around a 75 percent on him which i think my friend who i went with was too for context, I should say that I have loved Michael B. Jordan ever since The Wire when he was a small, awkward-looking child, so I feel differently about him now. I've had a huge crush on him for several years, but I've loved him as an actor for many more years than that. Uh, I think he's incredible. I think he's beautiful. And I felt like in this, he veered from very effective to giving very hammy shouting performance scenes no in a way <laughs> oh yeah and it like overall worked fine but i what my friend said was like someone told him he was playing the bad guy and i was like oh yes that's definitely what happened like when he first shows up in wakanda he's just like he's yelling man and i was like oh yeah like please calm down a little bit and i think like having seen he hasn't done that many movies. I have not seen Fantastic Four, because why would I have done that? No. But I think I've seen basically all of his major roles, and I think this is the least good in terms of like pure acting performance. There are a few moments where he's incredibly emotionally affecting, so I didn't think he did like, a bad performance, but I didn't find him as nuanced as most of the other big performances in this movie. And I think that that has to do with also the fact that I didn't find the writing on him as nuanced as some of the other characters. And I found it interesting to compare him to Magneto, which is obviously like the yeah. most direct sort of comics y comparison, right? Because his position is effectively like, why are you hiding away? Like, all of your people are across the globe suffering, and like, you should be using your weapons to liberate them. Like, you should have basically like revolution everywhere and like kill people and, and to chill this point is like all black people are not wakandan we have a national right. identity 
it's like the black American versus African identity kind of clash. Right. And so it is there it is a very X-Men type dynamic. I mean not exactly, but like that's a it's a similar yeah. type of they've, thing. They've definitely drawn comparisons in interviews and I think that's correct. Yeah. But I find Magneto much more sympathetic. And I think it's because he's written better. And they have more time to develop him, obviously, because he's been in like many, many films and this is one film. But Killmonger basically shows up and is like I'm torching everything. I'm taking all of your weapons and I'm going to send them to places and they're going to kill a bunch of people. And like, obviously Magneto has many crazy schemes in all the X-Men movies that are like very violent and bad, but I didn't think he actually had enough screen time in this. Like if the calculating number of lines of dialogue he actually has, I bet you it would be not that high. And I think it's, I imagine it was very complicated when they're doing it because like, what do you cut? You can't cut the women. Right? Like, you can't do that. The answer really is, like, get Martin Freeman out of there. But they must have had a mandate from the studio that was like, Martin Freeman has to be in the movie, like, X percent of the time. I mean, I, th- I think it's okay that he's in it. And he is he is a Black Panther character rather than an Avengers character. This isn't something where they've carried oh, him over. I, I didn't mind him. Like, I, yeah. I didn't mind him in the movie at all. But in terms of figuring out where the space is going, right? He absolutely has more lines than Michael B. Jordan. Like, I'm certain that that is the case that i just didn't think that they gave him enough time to be fully nuanced and i actually think that he works as well as he does because even though i thought michael b jordan was quite hammy he has such a strong on-screen presence that you are drawn to him just because like his face is so compelling right but i thought that was sort of the movie's weakest point Because I wasn't ever tempted, even though his argument is, part of his argument is compelling, I was never tempted to be like, yeah, he kind of is, like, right, like, you just want T'Challa to beat him because, like, he's fucking psycho, right? Like, it's, it felt like a bit of a missed opportunity to me, particularly given the, like, the actors they had. I wish that they had done better. And I know you disagree with me. <laughs> yes, I do disagree with you. I think that he is, I mean, I obviously would have loved to see him get more screen time, but I do think that he is kind of the best MCU villain alongside Loki, for sure. There's not a lot of competition. That's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like the only, yeah, the only, like in the MCU, the Netflix series have quite a lot of good villains. The movies, basically, they hire a lot of good actors to play just utterly shit, poorly written characters. I loved Eric Killmonger and I loved Michael B. Jordan and I think he was really good casting I think his styling was great I really I found his um his kind of fashion situation really interesting because I I think at this point we need to go into spoilers so you know um he is kind of introduced as it's not really clear but it's sort of like an arms dealer mercenary he's a former U.S. soldier who came from like a really difficult background and he also went to MIT you know he's really smart and the obvious choice for every blockbuster version of that character. It's just kind of like an intimidating, muscly guy, because he's an ex-soldier. But instead, he's really fashionable. He has like a really sharp haircut. This film actually illustrates that people have personal fashion sense, which never happens in any superhero film. There will be like one woman or one villain will have fashion sense and everyone else will be wearing like a generic gray t-shirt. So first of all, I really liked that. But also I'm gonna read some stuff out to you. First of all, is a tweet from the uh, film critic Matt Zoller cites says, Michael B. Jordan is on a short list of leading men I'll see in, ev- in anything. Um, he's a strong, subtle actor who goes straight for the truth of a moment and almost never does anything showy. You don't just watch him, you feel him. He's the Heath Ledger Joker level of great in Black Panther, which is essentially the opposite of what Morgan just said, because she was like, he's yeah, too I showy. Don't <laughs> um, agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was very volatile, but I thought it was interesting an interesting contrast with T'Challa, because it's like he's this character who's seen a lot of life, but he is kind of immature. You know, he like, as you hear from the, the backstory, basically, Kelmonger, his father was Wakandan, and he's actually T'Challa's cousin, so he's kind of first in line to the throne, technically. Um, or he has, you know, he's able to challenge the line of succession. But his father, he was, like, killed 
because he had betrayed the motherland, basically. So Eric was left behind in America and just had to make his own way. They kind of erase his mother, which I would have been interested to hear more about his mother, which is kind of an ongoing problem and everything, but I will allow it in this film because it had so many fil- so many female characters. But it's interesting because like they have, because T'Challa is so much more of a mature uh, protagonist than a lot of other superhero movies where they really do kind of focus on the man-child aspect because in this film you do see a lot of stuff where it's like he's unsure in his leadership and he's mourning his father and he's not sure if he can be king yet but at the same time he has that kind of sophistication that you don't see from like Thor you know it's kind of the opposite of Thor essentially and I'm just going to read part of my review out because I kind of I wrote a bit about why I like uh, Killmonger so much In the classic vein of superhero villain pairings, Eric and T'Challa mirror each other. Eric is angry, isolated, and desirous of power, while T'Challa is stable and surrounded by trusting friends. Uh, But even then, he's still unsure of his readiness for the throne. Both of their ideological positions are understandable. T'Challa has a strong sense of justice, but his duty to Wakanda makes him reluctant to help outsiders. Meanwhile, Eric sees the power of Wakanda's technology and wants to use it to free black people from oppression worldwide. He's led a life where violence equates to strength. Uh, contrasting with T'Challa's balance of diplomacy and mythic heroism. Um, And the way he takes power is that he defeats T'Challa in single combat, which I thought was like a really telling choice because you know that T'Challa can't win because he doesn't have the level of military training and also sheer viciousness that Eric has. And it's kind of highlighting the flawed nature of this sort of ritualized monarchic system, even though it is so enjoyable to watch because all of the kind of celebrations and all of the kind of traditional art in the film is so beautiful. And I just thought that was a really interesting way of kind of, it really embodies the ideas that you see in the comics, which is this celebration of the Wakandan identity and all of the kind of visual styles and the religion while also critiquing it at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's, I just, yeah, I don't have to like yeah. <laughs> No, no argument. But yeah, I just, I just really liked Eric Kilmonger more and I, yeah, I, I feel like um, Michael B. Jordan has this sort of youthfulness in all of the roles I've seen him in, uh, where he can be this character who is clearly really powerful, but he just has this sort of immaturity to him and sensitivity, whereas T'Challa also much more in touch with his emotions than you see with a lot of superhero characters. But at the same time, because he's spent his entire life training for this diplomatic role where he's in charge of this country with a lot of very like impressive technology that they have a very clear national identity difficult job uh (laughs) he he just doesn't have that kind of dumb man-child situation that you see in guardians of the galaxy and iron man like obviously captain america is different but like it's the same thing where it's like he knows that he's not a solo act yes but also comes in without really a strong point of view on this issue the film is the journey of him deciding you know he's making a decision as with every every narrative structure of any one of these stories yes got to make a choice and then at the end he makes the right choice (laughs) but i mean in general it's just not really structured like a superhero film which is refreshing yes i mean obviously there's fight stuff and there's a big fight at the end but there's no big explosion at any point no which was, I mean, I guess Martin Freeman shoots the planes out of the sky, but they literally make him, like, leave. Yeah. <laughs> he goes main. away, and instead they resolve the largest conflict of the film by just realizing that you're actually both on the same side. So the people yes. who have joined behind Eric Kilmonger, they end up fighting um, the Dora Milaje, and then that battle essentially ends when Okoye is faced with her boyfriend on his war rhino, which, by the way, I was enjoying this this film so much that when they introduced the war rhino halfway through, I didn't even consider that it was Chekhov's war rhino. So when it showed up at the end, I was like, oh my God, what a surprise. <laughs> That's how much I was like into this film that I did not get that basically telegraphed. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's like, it's very cute because the war rhino won't attack her. And then they realize that actually they should all be fighting for Wakanda rather than against each other. And then... Eric Kilmonger just gets this amazing death scene. I actually couldn't believe I was seeing in a Disney film a story that just straightforwardly was like, the USA is a colonizing military imperial power and they use their they use the CIA to destabilize foreign governments. And then the villain has a really sympathetic death 
where he's given the option of going to prison and then he says bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who dove out of the slave boats now he's like holy shit <laughs> i mean they're releasing ant-man 2 later this year <laughs> don't even start <laughs> yeah i mean teach the kids yeah <laughs> but, but like, it, it didn't even properly sink in like i said this in my review as well but like obviously because of my own like political beliefs and whatever seeing the film they were kind of talking about like oh yeah the cia is really bad and you know they they you know eric kilmonger's strategies are coming from the fact that he was part of a military unit that was used to destabilize local governments and i was like yeah yeah sure and then i was like wait a second eight-year-olds are watching this movie this is a disney film and they're explaining this important information to children this is a great educational tool <laughs> yeah it was it's pretty wild and I, I mean, they clearly just decided, like, let him do whatever he wants. Yeah. That was obviously the, the... The last Avengers movie literally ended with the happy ending epilogue of Captain America's fake girlfriend joining the CIA. Because I remember being like, she's in the fucking CIA now? This is like, I know. <laughs> so I love, I love this. <laughs> I did think there was a really interesting interview um, on the Washington Post that we'll link to that I would, like, Highly, highly recommend um, anyone who watched this film reading uh, between uh, Larry Madowo and Karen Atia. And Larry Madowo is a Kenyan journalist and broadcaster. Um, and Karen Atia, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing the names here, which I apologize, um, basically they reached out to him to talk to him about his perspective on the film as an African person. Um, and I had never, or I had not seen this anywhere online. And so I was really curious to read that after seeing the film, because what my sort of main emotion after leaving it actually was that I was just really sad. Um, even though I found it like really excellent and pleasurable to watch, but the end of the movie is basically like T'Challa decides that they need to like, go out into the world, right? They go back to Oakland, which is where the movie starts, and he says, like, we bought all these buildings that the city was going to destroy, and we're going to turn them into this big, like, center for children, and blah, blah, blah. And they bring the big, like, ship down, and all the kids go over and look at it, and it's all very inspiring. And I just got really sad, because, like, that doesn't exist. Right? And, like, this, this isn't going to happen <laughs> for these kids. And, like, it's like, this, the movie is a fantasy. And it's, like, the whole... It is an inspirational fantasy, and I'm not saying it's bad that it exists, but it just made me sad at the end. And I was curious to know, like, basically how it was being received in African countries, because it is so of, like, American idea. And apparently it hasn't been released anywhere, or even premiered anywhere in Africa, except for Lupita Nyong'o's town because her dad is like the mayor or something and made it happen but I, this interview was just really fascinating because um this journalist wasn't at all like this movie is horrible and i hated it but he was uh, fairly ambivalent about it which of course like no american journalist has been like everyone in america is just like i love this so much it was so amazing and as we you know from what we just said like i thought this was a really great film but uh, i'll read a couple quotes that I thought were very thought-provoking or just interesting. One was that he just said, the accents are all over the place. It was jarring and annoying to me. They wanted to base the ac accents on Zosa from South Africa, but some of it sounded Nigerian, others sounded more Ugandan. It was very confusing, and I understand perfecting an ac accent is difficult, but oh my goodness, it was so messy. I really liked the costumes. They were great, but ultimately Wakanda, at least in the film, is an approximation of African culture, an outsider's view of what African culture might be like the rituals, song and dance, the rites of passage. As an African, I didn't feel accurately represented in Black Panther. There was only one African artist whose song played in the background. Her name is Babes Wadumu, and she's South African. I have nothing against Kendrick Lamar, but it would have been good to be more representative of African music. It was a huge opportunity to shine a spotlight on African musicians on a huge platform. It would have enriched the story. And I just thought that was like interesting to think about, because, of course, it is like a fantasy and an approximation. But I was wondering about the accents when I was watching it because I have no way of gauging whether they're accurate as opposed to like an English or an American accent, which I can tell. 
and I was not shocked to hear that they were all all over the place. And I'm not saying the movie is bad, and I'm not the person to be pontificating about this, but I would just be curious to read more read more takes from people on this, and this is the one that I found, so I would recommend people read it, because it is this sort of weird... It's a weirdly placed movie, right? Like, it was mostly made by Americans, and one of the things that was sort of amusing to me to think about, like, if I am right about the Lion King influence, and I really think that I am, because the one of the other things is when you mentioned the death scene, like, the shot of them looking out over Wakanda is also, like, definitely a Lion King reference. That's also, like, a movie about about Africa made by Americans, right? And that's, like, the most basic in-level reference, and, of course, there's all this research that went into it. But I just, I just found it sort of interesting to think about on that level, and I would be curious to read more from people who actually know about this. Well, I'll, I'll link about this in the show notes, um, but there's another article that it's in The New Yorker by Jelani Cobb, which is obviously coming at it from a different angle because it's not an African writer. But so he writes, Africa, or rather Africa in quotes, is a creation of a white world and the literary, academic, cinematic and political mechanisms that it used to give mythology the credibility of truth. No such nation as Wakanda exists on a map of the continent, but that's entirely beside the point. Wakanda is no more or less imaginary than the Africa conjured by Hume or Trevor Roper or the one canonized in such Hollywood offerings as Tarzan. It is a redemptive counter-mythology. Yeah, well, one of the other things this guy says, right, is that, like, basically, like, countries in Africa still kind of define themselves by, like, which nation they were colonized by, right? And, like, Wakanda is the fantasy of a nation that was never colonized. And so it's interesting in that way and curative in that way because it's sort of like, oh, this is what (laughs) could have happened if this never happened. So, again, I'm not trying to say that, like, this film is bad it shouldn't exist or whatever but it's sort of like there are i think i am very curious to read more coverage from like african critics whenever it comes out there yeah which hopefully they'll actually do they should be speeding this one along um, they've already made a fuck ton of money that. as well so just make yeah more. this movie over the long weekend in america is going to make well will have made by the time you listen to this 205 to 210 million dollars which is fucking crazy especially since the olympics are happening this weekend ryan coogler is 31 he is at the beginning of his career he can literally do anything now (laughs) well i was reading the report on this in the hollywood reporter and it basically it was the audience was like 36 percent african-american and then 35 or 37 percent white i can't remember and then the rest was made up of whatever whatever else and someone tweeted it and was like there's no economic incentive to make movies about white people (laughs) and i was like that's true because the according to this article the average percentage of um black moviegoers for an equivalent movie of this type would be like 12 percent and that figure jumps but the fear always is, right, that, like, white people won't show up to a movie like this, which they clearly fucking did. Like, the lines on the street in Brooklyn, we walked, we came out of our theater, and then you walk by another one as you get back, go back to the subway. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like, the people were literally just, like, blocks down, like, lining up to get in. To Black yeah. And it's, it's massively, because um, it came out in the UK and Ireland, like, three days before or something and it's already breaking box office records here and here there's also a narrative where it's like there's distribution wise there's this kind of idea where it's like people in europe in northern europe just don't want to watch movies about black american people and it's like there's no there's no evidence to fall and i it's like to the extent where obviously I am like aware of institutional racism in the movie industry, but I was genuinely surprised when I found out that was a commonly held belief a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, because it was like that's not that's not like reflected in the films that I know are popular here. Like people will watch anything. <laughs> I so... think that, that probably I think that that has historically been true worldwide. That like, but in terms of films... UK distribution. The UK is not the same, but the meme persists. But a movie like this, like a big blockbuster film, is not the same as something like, 
straight out of Compton, which I don't have the statistics on that, so I may be totally wrong, but I'm going to assume that that probably didn't make a ton of money in China. Right? Yeah. Like, probably not one of the some, 12 films that was released from Hollywood in China that year. Right. But something like Black Panther, it, like, will make money everywhere. Yeah. It's but Batman, they don't, but good. Like, right. <laughs> yes. But because they're not willing to make movies like this, except this film, then they can say, well, no one wants to watch. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. But, I mean, you're loath to ever say, like, maybe things will change now, because they never do. But this movie's going to make so much fucking money that, honestly, like, they're just shooting themselves in the foot at this point, right? If they don't follow up on this. So it will be interesting to see what happens. But congratulations to everyone involved, because it's making fucking bank. (laughs) I think that what I read was within, like, a week, if not five days, it will have made more money than Justice League made made in its entire theatrical run. I mean, sounds about right. Justice League should have made four dollars. Yep. So, haha. (laughs) Um, If somehow you've made it to the end of this podcast without having seen Black Panther, you should rectify that. It's like, I feel like I'm going to be almost Black impressed Panther. if they hasn't, haven't, because it's like, a lot of other film critics have also made their opinions known in this film. We are not a rarity in recommending Black Panther. <laughs> no. I think it probably, yeah, I don't, probably only Armand White disliked Black Panther. And I haven't looked him up. I'm just assuming that that was the case. Famous contrarian. For those of you who don't know. Um, yeah, go see it. It's great. And I was very pleased with it. Next weekend, we will be back with Annihilation. Possibly. Depending on my opinion, I may persuade Morgan to watch the latest Jennifer Lawrence film. Which may add, it may be the end of our trilogy of Jennifer Lawrence films. But I will be seeing Red Sparrow at a press screening on Monday. I will report back. <laughs> possibly i will just if, if it turns out to be a certain tone uh i will maybe just record like a little 10 minute minisode for our patreon followers so morgan can hear about it from me that way yes we'll see we will see um speaking of patreon if you have not backed us yet we would greatly appreciate it if you gave us a small amount of money thank you or a large amount if just you so desire about 100 people have backed us right now People are mostly going for $3 a month, which means that you get the exclusive mini-sodes. And this will soon pay for a good microphone for Morgan, so we will suddenly sound much better. Um, yes. <laughs> in theory. So you will all benefit. Um, um, you can do that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Thank you so much to everyone who already has backed us. And otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at OverInvestedPod, or on Tumblr at OverInvestedPodcast. Thanks. Bye.